The following announcement has been paid for by Journey Into Wrestling. Things seem to be changing around here, and I'm talking podcasts, brother. Journey Into Comics Network and no JIW? Where's the wrestling? That's just it, bro. We're making a comeback. JIW has taken over. Butt stuff, podcastrophe, the poor rapport, all these new guys on the scene. We're about to show them what podcasting is all about, Chico. Why don't you tell them when they can hear us, Nate? Every other Wednesday, right here on the Journey Into Wrestling Network. Anything less is just too civilized. Following is a Journey to Comics Network production. Guess what, guys? I'm back. And that's really the only good news we're going to talk about today. But we're going to talk about all of it and more on this week's The Poor Report. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 15 of The Poor Rapport. I am your host, Andrew Poor, and I want to thank you for joining me. Now, I know I wasn't here last week. I had some issues with flying, so I had to contact the podfather himself, Nate, host of Journey into Comics, and a co-host on Foodies Watching Movies to come out here and record an episode for me because I wasn't able to get something out in time because I had a last-minute flight, had to get to Denver to finish my project up. And he was able to get something together. He got the articles together, and he got to actually see a different side of Nate than you get to do on any other show on the network. Got to hear some of his uh, political opinions. Got to hear some of his thoughts about what's going on in the world these days. And there's definitely a lot to get through. And Nate was great. I really enjoyed his take on my show. It's probably one of the first times that a show with a host's name in the title is not a part of that show. So I'm thankful for Nate for stepping it up. He really made it so I had to kind of step my game up to get on his level because the Podfather doesn't do a bad show. So thanks again, Nate. And I hope I uh, am able to pick up what you put down last week. So I encourage all of my listeners, if you haven't heard 14 yet, go back, listen to 14. It's not me. I had some thoughts and stuff I sent over to Nate, so he was able to take some of what I was planning on talking about and also had put some stuff of his own spin on it. So really thankful for that. And hopefully this will be the last time someone has to step up for me. I'm actually traveling again. I'm actually in the great city of Utah doing some more work stuff, but hopefully it'll be back in the state of Illinois by the time you're listening to this podcast. So hopefully going forward, I'll be able to do a more of a longer show and able to do kind of some more fun stuff with it when I actually have some more time and I'm not running to airports. So, and as any of you know who travel a lot, that the O'Hare airport is its own mess of fun. So yeah, always good time. Before I kind of move into the kind of the meat and potatoes of my show, I want to talk about something I actually finished reading and this would actually go really good on discussion on the literature podcast with Joanna. Uh, she just put out her prologue for it on our uh, on the Journey into Comics Network website. So if you go into journeyintocomics.com, listen to episode one, the prologue, you get to hear about a 10-minute intro of what she's hoping the show to be. And hopefully, fairly soon, we're going to have a nice episode about something. So what I actually watch and actually ties into what's coming at the end of this week, which is the new Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. So I actually finished... Carrie Fisher's last autobiography, 
which was called The Princess Diarist. I had the book. I picked up at the airport earlier in November and actually bought the audiobook because I found out it was performed by herself. And then uh, her daughter, Billy Lord, read some of the Young Carrie journal article or uh, notebook writings. So that was kind of cool. And it really helped it pop out. I know, at least with me personally, when I listen to an audiobook of an, like an autobiography or someone's own personal story, it feels like they're telling it to me personally. It doesn't feel the same way as certain other audiobooks are. So it's a really interesting read. I really enjoyed kind of getting absorbed into it. It actually kind of coincides with her life. I know she's covered this in other biographies like uh, Wishful Drinking and uh, some of her other books she's put out. But this book kind of kind of glosses over her life as a child of Debbie Reynolds and kind of going through her mother's fall from grace as her career was kind of winding down after like it was kind of after it plateaued and kind of started going down the other end. And it kind of took her life through that, through high school, going off to college and then auditioning for Star Wars as a 19 year old and when she was in England studying for school. And you got to kind of hear her some of the background scenes of what happened. I actually learned about uh, an affair she had with Harrison Ford at the time, which would have been like 12 to 15 years her senior. I don't remember exactly what she said and how it was one of her first experiences in that way. And it was very interesting to get that kind of side. Not many people go into that much detail of their past. So it was something that I thought was kind of interesting. But uh, moving kind of forward, it kind of takes her life through the first Star Wars movie, through the second Star Wars movie. And then it kind of jumps around a little bit and how her post-Star Wars career with not finding work, doing the Comic-Con circuit and doing these autographs, which you call like lap bands, which is basically sitting in a booth with pictures of yourself and signing them to the person who would bite on the other end of a screen or the end of the table or however it ends up working out just to kind of make ends meet. Not really that she was broke, but it was more to show so she could live the lifestyle she wanted to live. So it was something that kind of allowed her to do that. And as though she kind of made fun of it and Carrie Fisher, if anyone has seen interviews with her or seen her on other shows, she's very self-deprecating. She makes fun of herself. She has a good time. So this book is a lot of that, and she even kind of shared kind of stories from fans and kind of impersonated them, at least on the audiobook version, which I think was the best way to hear that. If I think if I was reading it in text, it probably would have been a little hard to figure out what she's actually talking about. And it's kind of her through the – seems like, oh, you don't remember me, blah, 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 talking about themselves. Can you sign this? Oh, can you sign that too? Can you say Leia underneath? Oh, you put uh, – P-L-O. What's that mean? Oh, Princess Leia Organa. Okay, but can you really sign Leia here? Oh, I'm trying to get Harrison Ford's signature too. I know that's a long shot. She really goes kind of all in about some of her experiences with fans and her dog Gary and how when she found out she was going back to Star Wars The Force Awakens and how she joked about how they didn't want all of her. They wanted like 50 pounds less of her or a 50 pound less version of her. So she was talking about how her weight loss now, it's even went back to the first movie, how they wanted her to lose 10 pounds. And it was just Hollywood at that time and Hollywood now that they want to put the best version of a woman in their eyes up on screen. They don't want to put a heavier set woman, which is just a sign of the times. And we can go into that later, but that's not really what I'm trying to talk about here. But she got how she was so excited to be back in JJM's bringing back Star Wars and how she talked about how doing this movie can help her live more within the means she's been accustomed to her whole life. And, really helped her. So, and then the weird thing is she talked a lot about death, 
like her own death, which is weird knowing that this book and the audiobook and all that came out months before she passed and months before we actually and year before we actually see her the end of this week in her last star wars film which will probably be heart-wrenching because we still haven't decided how they're going to take her out of the franchise if they're going to give her an off-screen death if they're going to somehow try and make a scene that appears for death if they're going to send her off into oblivion and not really talk about it they have to give her some sort of send-off but that's something that hasn't really been let known but i'm assuming there'll be more answers by the end of this i don't know if they're going to address it in nine at the beginning, or if they've modified what eight was to give her a final send off. I know um, based on what I've heard, there's already going to be the movies dedicated to her. Um, like, a, like a lot of actors and actresses who have passed away either during production or were a big part of a film, the movies just dedicated to them. Like when the kid from the Star Trek movies passed away through that kind of that freak accident, they dedicated the Star Trek beyond to him. So it's just kind of one of those things. But I really enjoyed the read. It was really quick. If you get the audiobook, it's like six hours of listening, which the amount of time I've been traveling to and from airports, I was able to knock it out really quick, which was nice. There's also the couple of books. I actually saw the book on the shelf when I was at the library at the airport for the All the Money in the World, which is that movie that Kevin Spacey was, had completed where he played J. Paul Getty. And they chose, because of all the allegations against him and his like firing from Netflix's house of cards and all that, that they're going to recast Christopher Plummer, but the books out like the book with the movie cover and it still has Kevin Spacey on it and still has his name on all that because that stuff's been done many, many months ago before they can do a quick cut. And actually ironic enough, uh, speaking of all the money in the world, um, there were the golden globe nominations came out and Christopher Plummer, who they brought in, a month ago to fill in for not fill in for Kevin Spacey to replace Kevin Spacey on the film and bring his, bring that character to life, which was, I think the director's original acting choice. And he actually got nominated for a golden globe for his performance. So he got knew he got the part, filmed the part, cut the movie and got nominated for a golden globe in like a month and a half, which is really crazy, especially probably for an actor of Christopher Plummer's stature. So I kind of got off topic. That was kind of my spin out from the Carrie Fisher story. So, But I just encourage everyone to read Princess Diaries. It's quick. It has some intel. And it's really Carrie Fisher. At least if you listen to the audiobook, it's Carrie Fisher at her best talking about herself, talking about her story, finding these old books and talking about her lifestyle and her life and everything that's kind of gone through it. And it's one of the last things she put out from herself where she was Carrie Fisher. Obviously, we're going to see The Last Jedi soon, which will be her last film. But seeing one of her last works, something that one of the last things she really put effort into getting out on her own, which was the book and the audio book and the book tour, which I think is where she actually died was during part of that book tour. So I it was definitely a worthwhile read or a listen, but I have the both the audio book and the book now, and it's going to adorn my shelf with all my other collections of autobiographies of actors and actresses and presidents and all of the other people I like to read about. So I guess with that, I will kind of go into the rest of my show. Now, there's been a lot of crazy news this week and last week and other stuff I didn't really get to talk about and some stuff that Nate has talked about that I didn't really get to put my two cents on. So I'm going to kind of mission mass some some old news and some new news and kind of get everyone up to speed for this week. Now, one thing I saw that I thought was kind of crazy is that Facebook had put out this thing called Messenger Kids which allows 
kids under 13 to chat with other kids under 13 with their parents' approval. So basically, it's an app that I think you'd put on the kids' phone or your parents' phone that the parents have to okay who the kids message. So it's not like a chat room that when I was a kid, when a lot of you guys were kids, was a big thing. They're like, be careful who you're chatting with online. They could be a sexual predator. They could be some. They could be someone who's going to try and lure you out to kidnap you or do something. So this is Facebook's new version. And every time I when I heard about this, I was thinking of the show Silicon Valley when they had a chat service and it was on my all little kids and a few random old adults and there was this whole big problem. So that's one of the first things that this reminded me of. So uh, I'm going to read kind of this from the article, which was from TechCrunch, which is um, how it, this works is Messenger Kids lets parents download the app on their child's phone or tablet, create a profile for them, and approve friends and family with whom they can text or video chat with from the main Messenger app. So tweens don't sign up for a Facebook account and don't need a phone number, but can communicate with other Messenger and Messenger Kids users' parents sign off on. So younger siblings don't get let out of the family group chat. We've been working closely with the FTCs, so we're lockstep with them. This works, they said. Facebook product management director Lauren Chang tells me. In other apps, they can contact anyone they want or be contacted by anyone. Special proactive detention safety filters prevent children from sharing nudity, sexual content, or violence, while a dedicated support team will respond quickly to reported or flagged content. Facebook even manually sifted Jiffy to build a kid-friendly version of the GIF sharing engine. And with childish augmented reality mass stickers, video calls with grandma could be a lot more fun and a lot less silent or awkward. Facebook won't be directly monetizing messenger kids, automatically migrating kids to real accounts when they turn 13 or collecting data so that it compiles with Children's Online Privacy Act. But the app could prime kids to become lifelong Facebook users and lock their families deep into the platform where they'll see ads. When you think about things at scale that we do to get people to care more about Messenger, this is one that addresses a real need for parents. But the side effects will be that they use Messenger more and create family groups. So, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I guess if it makes sense, because I know there's a lot of stuff that you're in Facebook groups or Messenger groups with people you need to talk to. I know I'm in one for the network, for the main network, for the foodie show. I'm in one with friends on, like, those uh, GroupMe, which is just another one of those chat apps which lets you do just group messaging back and forth. So I don't know how I feel about it. It's a little interesting, but I don't even really think kids under 13 should have a cell phone to begin with. So giving them either a phone or an iPad with an access to Messenger, I think it's already it's creating even more of an addiction to smartphones and technology for kids that are going to be touching it from day two of their life anyway. So... I don't know. It might be a great thing. I don't have kids. I don't really have a voice matter, but it seems reminiscent to kind of to AOL Instant Messenger, which I had when I was a kid, or Yahoo Instant Messenger. So I think it's just the next phase in that evolution. And if you can approve of their who they contact, and the kid has no way to alter that with using your phone, if there's ways to get password protected and you're locked into only contacting like these 20 people, then maybe it'll be okay. Kind of like when those... Um, those phones you can get for your kids that had like five numbers on it where you can contact these five people, which is like home, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, that whole thing. So I think it's a, probably a step in the right direction for kids who can don't fake and get their own Facebook that early in life. But we'll kind of have to wait and see how this all shakes out. But I'm kind of just meh on the whole thing. It can, it could be a good thing. I just, I'm a little apprehensive to think it'll be anything 
really worthwhile. And I guess speaking, I already kind of touched on this earlier in my show talking about uh, Kevin Spacey and all that. But one thing I kind of want to touch on today was about House of Cards. So if any of you guys remember, as I think Nate talked about it on the show last week, was that House of Cards is going to have a sixth and final season that will have, they'll start filming uh, early next year. It'll have only an eight episode season. So they're going to cut off five episodes from basically what they've run with before. And Kevin Spacey will not be involved in any way, shape, or form. In the article from the New York Times, uh, Netflix's chief content officer said, we're really excited about bringing some closure to the show for fans. We're excited for the 370 people who make House of Cards and have done the best work of their lives on the show. The 2,000 people in Baltimore have come to depend on the show for their jobs, and so we're really excited that we're able to come and do it to do a creative conclusion to the show. Uh, Miss Wright's publicist will not immediately respond to a request for comment on Monday. So, looks like no Kevin Spacey anymore on House of Cards. Robin Wright will be the main character. She'll be being the head of the show. I'm really curious to see if they're going to redo the intro, which didn't really have any characters in it, or if they're going to do anything, any major changes to how the show is going to function. Because I have an eight-episode conclusion, which I'm happy for, but with them not even filming until the beginning of the year, we're probably not seeing this until the fall at the latest, which will put it probably right in line with the 2018 uh, midterm elections for a lot of positions. So there'll be a lot of political stuff going on next year, but I've loved House of Cards since the beginning. It's definitely my kind of show. I like a little political thriller in this Machiavellian type show. So I'm glad to see it come back. I wish in a different life that Kevin Spacey wouldn't have been who he was and were able to see the conclusion that the writers had originally intended or what the script originally showed for those characters. But what Kevin Spacey did was truly awful and he deserves to have everything taken away from him. And it's really showing that the wave of what's happening in the world and how people are kind of going through and seeing what's happened that they deserve to be gone. All right. I guess before I really get into the political news, I kind of want to focus on some good things going on in the world, which is based on all the bad stuff we've seen lately. I guess a video has been circulating regarding this kid called Keaton Jones. He released a video on Friday, or I guess his mom released a video for him showing uh, Keaton crying and kind of describing the bullying he endures at school. He kind of said in the video, why do they bully? What's the point of it? People that are different don't need to be criticized about it. It's not their fault. But if you're made fun of, just don't let it bother you. They suck, I guess. So, And since the video's taken off, there's been a lot of celebrities have come forward from like Chris Evans and Mark Ruffalo to Snoop Dogg to just a ton of people. A lot of people on my, my Facebook and Twitter and all that that I've seen, all these celebrities have come out and in support of this kid. I know uh, Chris Evans invited him to the Avengers premiere and like Justin Bieber came out in support of him. Mark Hamill, just a bunch of celebrities come forward and he's got to be feeling pretty good about himself. Now is he able to see that there are people out there that do care about him. I know it's these people normally wouldn't even know he existed if he didn't put a video like this and get this much attention. But I know bullying is not okay. And I know everyone does deal with bullying at some point in their lives, whether from small events to big events. And it's just something that we kind of have to deal with as we grow up. But they know there's got to be a line. And the kid spoke truth. And he got the attention. And he was able to hopefully shine some light on this. And it 
in the, this day and age, there's not being silent anymore. If you have a problem, you have to say something. And if you have a problem with someone or there's no, it's, it's just the way of the world is now. And you have to be open and honest and not hide what's really going on. So Keaton, I'm sorry this happened to you. And I hope your life going forward is great. Oh, and what I kind of talked about earlier with the um, Christopher Plummer winning a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor for All the Money in the World really has to go back to how Hollywood is feeling about the, this award season. So this article from the LA Times I'm going to read right now says, um, just three days before the no- before nominating ballots, sorry, just three days before nomination ballots for the Golden Globes were due, Sony Pictures screened a rough cut of All the Money in the World for the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. One week later, the kidnapping thriller earned three nominations, Ridley Scott for Best Director, Michelle Williams for Actress in a Drama Film, and Christopher Plummer for Supporting Actor. The later nod was particularly surprising given that the 87-year-old actor was only cast in the film in November. That's right. Plummer was cast in, shot, and earned a nomination for all the money in the world, basically in the span of a month. The world one began on October 29th when Kevin Spacey, who has already wrapped his role in Scott's movie as oil tycoon J. Paul Getty, was first accused of sexual harassment by actor Anthony Rapp. Spacely apologized for the behavior and entered treatment, but more than a half dozen others have come forward with their own misconduct allegations against the actor. He was fired from his Netflix show House of Cards, which in 2015 brought Spacey his only Golden Globe victory to date, and on November 8th, Scott announced that he was taking unprecedented action with this film. The director said he would cut Spacey from the movie and replace him with Plummer. Reshoots, the filmmaker said, will begin immediately and intend to make his initial release date of December 22nd. There are over 800 other actors, writers, artists, craftspeople, and crew who have worked tirelessly and ethically on this film, some for years, including one of cinema's master directors, the film's U.S. distributor Sony said at the time. It would be a gross injustice to punish all of them for the wrongdoings of one supporting actor in the film. For the most part, Scott has remained true to his word. After completing reshoots on November 30th and editing on the fly, the movie is still on target to be released at the end of the month, shifting a mere three days to December 25th. He says, despite the unexpected challenges we encountered after, resh- after shooting was completed, we were determined that audiences around the world would be able to see our film. Scott said in a statement following Monday's nominations. So the fact that we received these wonderful acknowledgments this morning is especially gratifying. The film, based on the 1973 kidnapping of John Paul Getty III, a grandson of Plummer's character, will screen for the press later this week. How it will fare during the rest of the award season remains to be seen, but don't expect to see it on a on the list when SAG Award nominations are announced this Wednesday. The film did not screen in time for that Guild's voting deadline. The Spacey Plummer casting drama is the most high-profile example of how the numerous sexual harassment revelations that have rocked Hollywood this fall are impacting award season. Transparent, the critically beloved Amazon show starring Jeffrey Tambor as a transgender parent, was not recognized by the HFPA in any category for the first time since its debut in 2014. Tambor, who won a Golden Globe for his role in 2015, was, ma- was last month accused of inappropriate behavior by his former assistant. Though he denied the allegations, the actor said he didn't see how he could return to Transparent given the politi- politicized atmosphere on set. Dustin Hoffman, who has been accused of sexual misconduct by three women over the last few months, also did not receive a nomination Monday. The actor, who had earned early praise for his turn in Noah uh, Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, was grilled about the allegations by host John Oliver in New York during a public Q&A last week. Also missing from the gold... Uh, I really don't want to go through the rest of this. Um, 
a lot of interesting nominations from the Golden Globes, including Get Out um, being nominated for Best Comedy Film. And I think at this point, it's probably going to end up winning that award and then probably go on to be a contender for the Best Picture Academy Award. And I think if it doesn't win, I still think Jordan Peele deserves it for his directing. For someone whose first directing role out of the gate was Get Out, he deserves that award. And I'm really curious to see what he brings to us next. And I guess I should probably move on to some political news. Unfortunately, this is kind of what the show is, is that... I guess I'm not quite sure how to say this, but a lot of the show hinges on political news, and it's been, some days it's good, some days bad. It just seems like every so often some stuff just comes out of our president's mouth that are baffling. And I'm kind of curious to see what he's going to say next, especially given that as of tonight, we will know who got elected to the Alabama Senate seat. Is it going to be Roy Moore or Doug Jones? And they're close. Neither of them have like 51% or more of the vote, but I think last time I looked, Doug Jones had 47% and Roy Moore had 46%. But this could all change. This is just polling ahead of time. And I know I'm definitely going to probably be put something out either through text or as an additional episode like a 0.5 or a special report on this election to really get into it really if doug jones wins there won't be a whole lot to talk about but if roy moore wins that's setting a dangerous precedent and i remember seeing something a while back regarding um what we saw with al franken and what we saw with roy moore and it was something i think i saw i think it was in a newspaper it said democrat or not you're a sexual predator and that's all that matters. And then underneath it, it says sexual predator or not, you're a Republican and that's all that matters. And I think if Roy Moore wins, that proves that statement accurate, that you could be whoever you are, you could be the scum of the earth. And as long as you're a Republican, you're going to get elected by people who want to see Republicans in charge. Regardless of your history, regardless of what you're doing, if they can count you in the box as a Republican vote for everything they want to do, they're going to back you. That's the reason Trump's supporting him. That's the reason he got the RNC and all of these other Republicans to support him. There have been a lot that have been having a clear case of conscience, but Trump's not even saying through all this that vote for Roy Moore, he's a great guy. He says, vote for Roy Moore so he can vote the way we want him to vote, which is almost like... Black It's like, I'll help you get elected, but you're going to have to vote for everything I put on this table. The tax bill, healthcare repeal, all of this stuff. I need your vote in the Republican column because they have, I think best case they have is a 51-49. If they have a 52-49, they're pretty golden on terms of all these half or more. But if the Democrats get it, they'll be 51-50 or something like that, which means... All they need is one vote gone, and it's a it's a loss. Two votes, or one, well, if it's one vote loss, it'd be 50-50. Unless they go the other side, then it would be a majority the other way. It's all sorts of complicated, but I know they really want Roy Moore to win mainly to push this health care repeal, repeal through. And speaking of the health care repeal, I know um, 
there's been kind of some stuff going on with that. And we know the health care bill passed last week. So now the Senate has a health, or not a health care, a tax bill. And the House is a tax bill. But they're not exactly the same. I know we criticize the whole thing about there being notes in the margins and all this stuff that really is ridiculous and no large scoping government level document should have essentially doodles or markings in the side and pages crossed out and notes written. That's not how this should be. It should be clear. It should go through a process. It shouldn't be tried to, it shouldn't be pushed through in the middle of the night just to get the vote. I'm just kind of sick of how Congress is doing it, how the house and Senate are trying to push through all this crap that it's not being vetted. They're just, doing it because they can not because they should and the healthcare or not the, the tax bill sorry i have healthcare on the brain i guess the tax bill is just kind of a mess and they still have to sell these together vote on a new one with both houses and then have the president write it up so i found an article from from a couple weeks ago actually last week regarding the how the, the main differences between the house and senate bill that have to be solved so here's the notable ones we're talking there's 13 of them it's um, when the individual provisions expire. Senate says it expires in 2025 and the houses are permanent. Uh, number two, the mandate to buy health insurance. Senate eliminates it by reducing the penalty to zero dollars and house preserves it. Tax bracket and rates. Senate says keep seven tax bracket, but changes, but changes and in most instances lower the rates. The new rates would be 10, 12, 22, 24, 32, 35, and 38 and a half. The House calls for four brackets, 12, 25, 35, and 39.6. Not sure what these fractional values are and what they have to do with anything. Um, standard deductions. Senate raises it to 12,000 from 6,350 for single filers, which sucks. Uh, to 18,000 from 9,350 for heads of household. To 24,000 from 12,700 for joint filers. Oh, these are deductions. Maybe it's not as bad. Um, the House raises it to 12,200 for single filers, to 18,3 for heads of household, to 24,4 for joint filers. These are all be important to me because by the time all these go into effect, I'll be close to getting married and have to do all this stuff. Um, number five, child tax credit. Senate increases it to 2,000 from 1,000, but the additional 1,000 would not be refundable, meaning many low and middle income tax filers likely wouldn't receive the increased portion of the credit. It allows it for children under 18 up from 17 today, but only until 2025, and makes the full credit available to higher income families. House increases it to 1600 from 1000, but the additional 600 would not be refundable, makes it available to higher income families. So make a lot of money, you get more money back, which is, doesn't make any sense. Uh, new family credit. Senate creates a temporary $500 credit for dependents who aren't children. House creates temporary $300 personal credit for parents and their non-child dependents. Um, number seven, the mortgage interest deduction. Senate keeps it as is. House lowers the amount of mortgage debt on which interest may be deducted to $500,000 from $1 million. Okay. Uh, number eight, medical expense deduction. Senate keeps it in place and temporarily lowers the adjusted gross income threshold that must be met to qualify for it. Today, you must deduct medical expenses that exceed 10% of your adjusted gross income. That would be lowered to 7.5%. The House eliminates it. So far, I'm kind of liking the Senate more, at least on, during some of this stuff. Uh, teachers deduction for school supplies. Senate doubles it from five to 500 from 250, and the House eliminates it. 
with a fiance who's a teacher, I am all for the Senate's version of this. Uh, number 10, graduate student tuition waiver. Senate keeps it in place. House eliminates it. Yeah, I'm still really liking the Senate one on this. Um, 11, student loan interest deduction. Senate keeps it in place. House eliminates it. As someone who's still paying off their student loan debt, I am all still all for the Senate's version to keep it in place. Number 12, alternative minimum tax. Senate keeps it but raises the amount of money exempt from it through 2025. Then income exemption level reverts to present law. And the House repeals it. Still kind of like the Senate. 13, estate tax. Shields, uh, Senate shields more people from it by doubling the exemption level to $11 million for individuals and $22 million for couples. House doubles the exemption level for six years, then repeals the estate tax in 2024. Yeah, I really, after reading all this, I, don't, I haven't read the House or Senate tax bill in detail because the House one is way too many pages to read and there's notes written in the margins, so it's not really worth my time to read something that's essentially garbage. Senate, still haven't read it. Um, I don't know the length of two. They're probably both very long documents, and I hope it doesn't screw over the middle class and lower income families the way it sounds to be. So hopefully it gets resolved and they're able to fix it in 2018 going forward. So I'm guessing, depending on how the election goes tonight, that this could equal a wave in 2018 of a lot of flip seats, which would, if there ends up being a Democratic majority in the House or the Senate or both, it'll make the rest of Trump's presidency in his first term rough. And it'll probably lash out and who knows what will happen. But we could probably reverse some of the stuff he's been trying to do or block him from doing stuff that he wants to do anyway. I would expect more executive orders, but there's not a whole lot he can do in, for some things. I guess now I should... Sorry, I'm using a different computer than usual, trying to... And I guess I should, um, before I really forget, which kind of ties into the episode title of today, which is uh, Two Resignations and an Election. So the same day or right around the same day that Democratic uh, Senator Al Franken resigned based on all the sexual allegations, Arizona Representative, Republican Representative Trent Franks resigned following similar, or not similar, but following his own sexual assault allegations. So that is a Republican and Democrat that both resigned very close together, both on things. So all the stuff that's happened between Hollywood and businesses and politics and all this stuff, it's really coming to a head. It's not, there's no group of people, no job that is immune to this. We've seen it in the entertainment industry. We've seen it in the government industry. We've seen it everywhere. And this is only the beginning. I feel like what started probably way back with Bill Cosby is now moving forward and a lot of people a lot of it's coming to light now that people are more comfortable sharing so looks like today could be make or break if we elect someone with these kind of sexual not really allegations but all this misconduct against him then they're really saying that they don't care about this person they all i care about is a party and i really hate the people that vote straight party lines i like to at least when i vote i like to look at who this person is what they vote for kind of what some of their campaign points for Democrat or Republican gets my vote. Because some sometimes there's a great Republican, sometimes there's a great Democrat, and they deserve your vote. They shouldn't... I know a lot of people go in and check all of the Republican boxes or all the Democratic boxes. And if there's not a box that has a political party next to it, they pick the name that sounds better to them. I've done it on certain things. There's some things where I've known nothing about a certain random 
low-level government official in a county or city or those low-level political posts, one of those big ones you really should check. Like your senators, your representatives, your governor, all of the big stuff you should really keep an eye on. And your mayor, too. But we're going to have to see how tonight shakes out. I'm cautiously optimistic that Doug Jones will get elected, but I've been wrong before. I was wrong definitely last year in November. So, yes. And I guess something we was talking about that's kind of becoming a kind of a big event right now in California, which is the Thomas Fire, which is now the fifth largest wildfire in modern California history. Currently sits at 233,000 acres affected. This has been affecting a large portion of Southern California. Like I said, it's the fifth largest wildfire in California history. Uh, it grew by 50,000 acres during one day. It's destroyed homes and property, and it's just been a mess. And this isn't too long after what well, I feel like I talked about just the other day, which was the the Napa Valley fires and all these wires getting destroyed and it seems like California can't escape all of this craziness that has happened. And I guess kind of trying to move forward from that um, to kind of another tragic event that happened um, just this week, which was an explosion um, in Times Square. Uh, according to this New York Times article, a would-be suicide bomber detonated a pipe bomb strapped to his body in the heart of Manhattan's busiest subway corridor. Rending the early Monday commute with a blast that reverberated up through the city's sidewalks caused transit chaos and terrified thousands of travelers who fled headlong through tunnels choked with smoke. He chose the location because of its Christmas-themed posters recalling strikes in Europe against Christmas markets. He told investigators to set off his bomb in retaliation for U.S. airstrikes on ISIS targets in Syria and elsewhere. Um, but his makeshift weapon sputtered. The attacker himself was the only one seriously injured. A suspect identified police as... Akayed Uluat, who's 27, an immigrant from Bangladesh who lived in Brooklyn, was in police. He suffered burns in his hands and abdomen and was at Bellevue Hospital. Uh, three other people had minor injuries. Yeah, that is terrifying. New York is still very much... Um, they, it's not even the first thing that's really happened this year. There was the incident just a month or so ago with regarding that vehicle that driven through that busy sidewalk and killed many people. It's just tragic how many of these events are becoming so commonplace that you'll almost see it and look at it and be like, oh, just another terrible event. Uh, my heart goes out to those affected and hopefully we can see an end of this chaos happening. I guess we really need to move for on for some good news. And I guess one bit of good news is that if you remember a while back that um, Trump came out saying that he was going to uh, ban transgender people from the military. And it looks like, according to CNN, that transgender people free to enlist in the U.S. military starting in 2018 after a recent court ruling. So the Pentagon said Monday that it would begin processing transgender applicants to the military on January 1st. So I guess that's one good thing that people – I 
And I guess the White House doesn't particularly happen, I guess, according to this, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said the Department of Justice reviewing the legal options on court ruling on transgender Americans serving the military, saying they were simply complying with a court order and preparing to implement a previous policy to remain in compliance. The Department of Justice is currently reviewing the legal options to ensure that he, the president's directive can be implemented. So I guess we'll see if the Trump is able to stop this from happening or if transgender people will be able to enlist. I guess there's a big thing going on in Bitcoin. I really don't know much about it. I've never really gotten this whole Bitcoin trend, but apparently Bitcoin futures are trading massively and it's just kind of no sign of stopping. So some people are making kind of crazy money. So yeah, I guess that's a thing to keep an eye on if you're those investing in futures. This also thought, came across that I thought was kind of funny. Can Kim Jong-un control the weather? North Korea's state-run media says... Yes. According to this Washington Post article, in rare free moments when Kim Jong-un isn't calling President Trump a dotard, launching ballistic missiles in the Sea of Japan or engaging in general dictatoring, he apparently goes on leisurely mountain hikes and flexes his never-before-reported superpower, controlling the weather. The case for the North Korean leader's cameo role in a new action movie came during a brisk two-mile stroll up Snowy Mountain, Pak-2, a week or so ago, as reported by the state-controlled Korean Central News Agency. The 9,000-foot mountain is normally a wintry mess in December, according to the news agency, but during Kim's visit, it was a marvelous scene with glee at the reappearance of its great master. When Kim ascended to the top, the mountain showed fine weather unprecedented. It was obviously a homage to Kim. KCNA reported the man who controls the nature. The fine weather was fortuitous as picture showed Kim made the arduous trek up the mountain in dress slacks and shiny leather shoes. Of course, it should be said that KCNA and other state-sponsored media are known for making claims about North Korean leaders that range from mild exaggeration to chronicles of Narnia. Among them, Kim Jong-un and Korean scientists formulated a miracle drug, a combination of ginseng and rare earth elements that, with one injection, can cure or treat AIDS, Ebola, many cancers, heart disease, impotence, the common cold, harm from use of computers, epilepsy, all forms of hepatitis, venereal disease, and aging. It also, for some reason, renders its users anti-radioactive. What? <laughs> that's a that's an that's a new one. But this is North Korean state-sponsored military or er, news media. Um, Kim Jong Un could drive at age three, and it was a competitive sailor at age nine. I'll believe that when I see it. Um, Kim Jong Un in North Korea archaeologists also found a unicorn's lair, or at least a recently reconfirmed the location of unicorns ridden by the ancient Korean king Tong Myong, according to the Guardian. If people are distrustful of the discovery, it is a rectangular rock in front of that reads Unicorn Lair. Korean news agencies report that Kim's father, Kim Jong-il, learned to walk at three weeks old and once shot a round of golf that included 11 holes in one. Sounds about right. Uh, people surprised by his greatness should only remember the day he was born when a double rainbow suddenly appeared in the sky. And Kim Jong-il could control the weather too. These claims could not be independently collaborated on Monday. Because they're false. <laughs> uh, nothing will bow. And I think that's kind of what Trump wants. Trump wants, I think, to be seen as this kind of fantastical being that everyone believes in right. And I think he wants his own state-controlled media, which he almost has with Fox News. Yay, Fox News. And speaking of Fox News, they came out today saying that um, they mocked CNN for airing segment on Trump's soda consumption while New York City faced terror attack. So there's a, there's a side by side showing um, Trump drinks a diet do, dozen a dozen diet cokes per day, and then the other side shows Fox News covering uh, the New York City terror attack. 
So I guess according to the Fox News article, and this is from Fox News' website, an attempted terrorist attack caused massive chaos during Monday's morning rush hour in New York City. But some CNN viewers could be in the dark because the network spent an inordinate amount of time covering an anti-Trump story about the president's soda consumption while details of the chaotic situation unfolded. At 8.45 a.m., a law enforcement official told reporters, including the Associated Press, that a man had a pipe bomb strapped to him when, he, when it went off on the New York City subway. That was roughly the same time that CNN was in the middle of a segment that featured the Chiron. New York City wrote, Trump drinks dozen Diet Cokes per day, while a large government in Tuesday's election night, Alabama, took up a significant portion of the screen. Viewers quickly didn't notice media crisis guru Yossi Jacentner tweeted, more than, an, more than an hour after the pipe bomb story broke, CNN was busy with Trump's Diet Coke. While another viewer asked, why are you talking about this? I talked about how quickly CNN pivoted from New York City explosion to ridiculous story, Trump drinking a lot of Diet Coke. Media Research Center Vice President Dan Gaynor used the situation to mock CNN's recent ad campaign in which the network used an apple in an attempt to combat its fake news reputation. Uh, it says, quote, U.S. News was talking about the bombing at 7.54. Nearly an hour later, CNN is whining about Donald Trump's Diet Coke and watches too much TV instead of reporting about terrorism in New York City. CNN might tell you what it's giving you as an apple, but if it is, it's rotten. So, and this is also goes back to remember when a couple weeks to a month ago when there's a whole thing with the Mueller investigations and all the news days were stored and then Fox was talking about Thanksgiving food or some food related item. So it's just showing that some people get caught up in their own agenda and will miss something saying right in front of them. And no news agency is infallible to that. And yeah, like I said before, CNN was covering the fact that Trump drinks a dozen Diet Cokes a day at least. Some are served to him in a wine glass by a waiter in the Oval Office. Which is kind of ridiculous to me. Like, I know we've seen some kind of crazy stuff going on with all of this with Trump doing these things, but a dozen Diet Cokes is a lot of soda to drink. And I don't even like Diet Cokes. If it was regular Cokes, still a lot, but at least it's a regular Coke. But I'm not a Diet Coke fan. None of some of my friends will disagree with me. They love the taste of Diet Coke. So to each their own, but a dozen Diet Cokes seems like a lot. And I guess... Just about does it for the news today. I guess here's another uh, CNN politics story, but here's what really scares Donald Trump. In this terrific New York Times piece on Donald Trump in the White House, one line stuck to me is absolutely critical to understanding how the 45th president of the United States approaches the job. It's this one. Quote, before taking office, Mr. Trump told top aides to think of each presidential day as an episode in a television show in which he vanquishes rivals. There's so much to unpack there. Start with the fact that TV is the frame through which Trump sees not only his presidency, but his broader life. If something or someone is on TV, if matters, if not, then not. The equation for Trump is that simple. You see that focus bordering on obsession manifests in all sorts of ways during Trump's first near year in office. His habit of praising some members of Congress in a crowd for how he or she did on television. Example, I saw Congressman Gatz on TV the other day. He did a great job. Really great. He's uniquely focused on how cable covers his, his events and pronouncements. This from CNN's Dylan Byers is hugely made on the front. In the wake of almost every event he holds, whether it be a rally, a bilateral press conference, or a whiteout ceremony, Trump is presented with a packet of screenshots showing how the television networks covered this event. He makes constant, constant reference in virtually every speech to the number of cameras covering the event. One example, look at all these red lights, Trump said when he was in Alabama earlier this year to campaign for appointed Senator Luther Strange. Aye, aye, aye. It's always fun to see a red light. Now take a step back. It's not just that Trump 
judges success or failure via TV. It's deeper than that. It's that he views his entire presidency as one big reality TV show in which the goals are only A, to be perceived as winning in the eyes of the audience, and B, to keep people watching. Which actually explains a lot. Um, So go back and read that sentence from the Times piece. Before taking office, Mr. Trump told top aides to think of each presidential day as an episode in a television show in which he vanquishes rivals. The key for Trump is to win the day in the eyes of the people watching on TV. But it's more than that. It also vanquishes his political enemies. To be seen as the victor, the tough guy, the winner. It's like he sees the presence as a daily seeing competition where he always wants to win the people's vote. What's important about Trump's view of the presidency is that winning a cable news cycle or a daily seeing competition is at best a tactic. It's nothing close to a strategy. Which dives with the difficult that arises any time someone tries to put a narrative arc on this presidency. There really isn't one. The secret plan is that there is no secret plan. Trump's act and reacts in real time with very short-term goal win the moment. Being talked about is enough as long as he is subject of the national conversation. Trump is relevant. When is Trump's insistence that Barack Obama wasn't born in the U.S.? And in Trump's words, being relevant is the only thing that matters. Death for him is not mattering. But I think if you looked at everything Trump's done in the scope of what this article says, it actually makes a lot of sense. And I guess really with that, I'm going to wrap up this show... Oh, I guess there's one other thing that's worth talking about. Trump wants to send U.S. astronauts back to the moon and someday Mars. I guess um, at a time when China's working, this is from a Reuters article, at a time when Washington, or when China's working on an ambitious lunar program, President Donald Trump vowed on Monday that the United States will remain the leader in space exploration as he began a process to return Americans to the moon. He said in a quote, we're the leader and we're going to stay the leader and we're going to increase it many fold. Trump said in signing Space Policy Directive 1 that establishes a foundation for a mission to the moon with an eye on going to Mars. So I guess Trump wants to go back to the moon. I guess we'll have to see how that shakes out. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think it would be interesting to go back to the moon and get more updated with the, the information we have now. So we'll kind of see. But Space Policy Directive 1 just seems like a weird title for a mission. Uh, so we'll kind of see how all that shakes out. I guess with that, I'm going to wrap up today's show. There's been a lot of news to cover, and I feel like I'm still kind of getting my feet wet and kind of being out of my element with being recording this from a hotel room after a flight kind of makes it a little daunting to do. But I have big plans coming the end of this year. I think my traveling days are done after this trip, which means more time to put more energy and ideas into effect. So... Like I said, I appreciate all of my listeners out there, and I hope that you keep listening. I know we're on Spotify now, which is exciting, so you can check us out there. You can check us out on all of the – I know I since I've been traveling, I've been listening to my network or our network as well as other podcasts I like to listen to on the app CastBox. So I haven't had any issues with that yet, so that's always been nice. There's all these other networks. You can go to our website, journeyintocomics.com. We can probably catch my 0.5 episode if it doesn't get aired on the general public is on our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash journey into comics, which you can check it out there and just keep listening. Um, a lot of new shows coming out really since I've been kind of been traveling. I know we started Bruise with dude and literature and I know we have big plans and Nate has big plans for the network in the next coming weeks and months. So Keep tuning in to the Drain the Comics Network. So I want to thank you again for listening to The Poor Report. And have a great week. I will be back next week. I will talk to you guys soon. Have a great, great week.